I'm Michael Barber and I advise governments on how to deliver on their promises. As a young teacher in the early 1980s, I answered an advert in the press and found myself a few months later teaching in Zimbabwe. When I arrived, I was sent to Seke Number no. 2 High School in a large township outside the capital Harare, where I taught history to seven classes of about 50 pupils each. My employment was part of a plan led by the new Minister for Education, Dr. Jingai Mutumbuka. At the point of independence, there had been no secondary schools at all where I was in Seke. But Dr. Mutumbuka was expanding provision at breakneck speed. Each new school required not just bricks and mortar, but teachers, textbooks, leadership, and a consistent supply of that sweet milky tea at break time that kept us all going. Before independence, Jingai had been running the education system for exiled Zimbabweans in the refugee camps in Mozambique. While Robert Mugabe and others fought in the liberation struggle, Jingai battled to liberate the minds of future Zimbabweans. It was no surprise that when independence came, Robert Mugabe asked him to create the school system for the new country. It was exciting, but it was also scary. It was exciting because I had the potential to really build something. It was frightening because if I make mistakes, I can doom the nation forever. So it was a huge responsibility on your shoulders, and you felt that. Yes. I spent six to nine months doing PR. This may sound strange. Basically, what I did was to do public relations work. Why? Because in the country, there was an incredible amount of tension. Many white people really believed I was there to destroy the high quality of education of their children. I also had to convince black parents and black teachers that I was going to take critical steps to ensure there was equitable provision of education of high quality, but that it would take time. And I had to convince the parents that we could work together to achieve a good quality of education without destroying the benchmarks that had been set by white education. And the expectations of the black majority were very high because they'd been waiting for independence. And so immediately they want everything to change. And you you had to manage that. That was the most important thing that I had to manage, to manage expectations and to convince people that I was the right person for the challenge that was there. So by doing this PR, I started hearing rumors that some white parents and teachers were saying that I was somebody they could work with. I also capitalized on the fact that I had had a very good education in Britain at Sussex University, had a PhD in physical chemistry. I cannot be that stupid. And I also told white parents that I'm not going to bus any children because I had discovered that busing had not always worked well in, in America. 
I said I was going to bring education to the children and not bus children to go and get an education. Because in the 70s, there was all that controversy in Boston in the US and various other correct. towns where the busing had become very, very controversial and divisive. Correct, correct. Yeah. So I also say to them, because there is a premium on space in secondary school, if there is a, a space at Oreo Girls High School, I am going to bring a black kid there, but yeah. it's not my responsibility to bus them. It's the responsibility of the parents to take the children there or back, that it was purely voluntarily. The other thing I said was that many schools, like one time I was in Bulawayo and I was talking to white teachers, I said, you know, Mpopoma High School doesn't have a single A-level math teacher, doesn't have a single A-level physics teacher. But here at Evelyn, you have got four teachers who can teach physics and math at that level. If any of you are willing to go and teach in these township schools, I guarantee you that you'll be safe and I assure your safety. But it's, it's up to you to decide whether I want to do it. What was amazing was the number of white teachers who offered to go and teach in these schools, particularly white women teachers. The PR worked very well to me because it enabled me to start planning for the new education system that we were going to establish. So that was your first year or so. And were you under pressure from your cabinet colleagues or from Robert Mugabe to go faster or did they see that that was the right way to go about it? I was under an incredible amount of pressure. There were even rumours that... Uh, the new Minister of Education is clueless, doesn't know what he is doing. But I kept Mugabe completely briefed. And Mugabe knew what I was capable of doing because when we were in the struggle, I'd established these schools from nothing. He'd seen what you did in Mozambique, so he knew you could do this, yeah. Yes, so he said, give him space. So all I said to Mugabe is, give me a year. So Mugabe then started saying to the people, don't worry. He knows what he's doing. So we started developing a new teacher training program because for us, it was very important to have teachers. And then remember that in Mozambique, all our schools were under trees. All what I knew then was you need a teacher and you need the students, you need teaching materials. That's all you can conduct education anywhere. And then the tree gives you some shade, which is really helpful. It's really yes, helpful yes, as well. Yes, yes, yes. So I said, I said, ideal, of course, you want the proper classroom. But if you are in the worst of circumstances, don't focus on infrastructure. Focus on what goes on between the student and the teacher and the means to be able to do this effectively. Yes. It's, I, I often say a school is the people, not the building. Correct. And that's exactly the same, uh, the same thought. First, we developed the Zintech, where we were actually now using the so-called dual method in German, where teachers are trained for one year, they go and they teach while they continue their education in the second year, and then they come and do the third year in college, and again they go and do the fourth year. In, and this method turned out, which we had piloted in Mozambique, turned out to be so effective that to this day, that's how they train primary school teachers in Zimbabwe. That's fantastic. And also it was clearly demonstrated because there were 13 teacher training colleges, but the five who went through Zintech 
were light years better than the other teachers who had gone through the conventional system. I said to people, we are not going to destroy what has been there, but let's have these two parallel systems that run. So they ran for three or four years. After that, they all converted to the Syntec program. And that's all within the first year or two you, you got that going? Correct. The second thing was secondary school teachers are dicey. They have to have good quality O and A levels, and they also have to spend more time in training because it's more intense. And I did not have even the O-level candidates to train secondary school teachers. So I said, look, until we have enough of our own secondary school teachers, I have to recruit teachers from abroad. And the Mugaba agreed with that. So I recruited Mauritian teachers, 300 from Mauritius. I recruited British teachers. I recruited German teachers. I recruited Irish teachers. I recruited teachers from Canada, under World University Service Canada. So I was able to, to bring all these teachers. And one other advantage that happened there, which many people may not know, is how these teachers from various systems contributed to making the system actually strong. A lot of them were motivated. A lot of them stayed on and became uh, teacher educators themselves. And so by, by actually focusing on teachers and on instructional materials, it gave me some breathing space to start the construction of schools. And so when I started the construction of schools, I went to the Minister of Finance and I said, I want to build one school a day in primary and one school every other day in secondary. I need money. And he said, uh, but that's colossal. I said, and the parents will also provide labor but will provide quality control. This is really important. So you, you, it's a lot of money to build that many schools. And there were many demands on the Minister of Finance, I'm sure, in, in health and other areas as well. But you got some money, but you matched it with voluntary effort from communities, from parents and others. Correct. The parents provided both money and the labour. If you did not, if you did not have money, you provided labor. So parents played an important role, but we had to control for quality. You got government money, but you've mobilized communities. Correct. The government money was also used very uh, strategically because we would give them a grant and they would make a foundation and they would go and inspect a foundation. If it passed the quality standards, then we gave them some money to build it to window level. There were some buildings we destroyed because we said it's not good enough. And so people began to know that I was the quality man. I didn't stand any nonsense. Whether it was software or it was hardware, quality mattered to me. In terms of construction of schools, it was cooperative effort between the parents and the government. And we, I also went to companies, particularly those which, had, which were mining. And I negotiated with the Minister of, of Finance that dollar for dollar, any money that is given by a mining company for construction of schools will be uh, forgiven. So they also started building schools around their company settlements. The other thing that I remember, and it happened while I was, uh, the two years I was there, the textbooks at the beginning were inherited from Rhodesia. You read the textbooks, there was lots of stuff about European history, Bismarck, the German Chancellor, was a hero. David Livingstone was a hero. 
But then some, somewhere along the line, you had commissioned some people who wrote new textbooks to give a different African perspective on the history. How did you go about doing that? Because you, you don't want to go from one set of myths to another. It was a gradual process. We had our own values, we had all our own views. So we started having people who were developing the curriculum and also working with the people in, in, in the UK because they were setting the exams. So we were working collectively with them all the time collaboratively, but we certainly were changing, particularly the history curriculum, we changed a lot. The old Rhodesian textbooks were very hard to read, actually, for the students I had in my class. They, they use very old-fashioned, almost academic English that, that for, a, for a 13 or 14-year-old who hadn't had secondary education before was, was tough to read. And your new textbooks were, let's say, more user-friendly as well as a different story. The students, because they got a, began to get a good education, they had very high aspirations. Uh, but, but sometimes when they left school, the jobs weren't there that they hoped to get. And they didn't want to go back to the rural areas, to the collective farms. How did you think about that? I started getting very concerned about that. And I spoke in cabinet that really we were creating a very dangerous situation because we were educating these youngsters, but that the job market was not moving as fast. And we started having fights with some ministers who were saying, it's your fault. You should not have educated them. You raised their expectations. And, and I must say that at that time, Mugabe always supported me. Mugabe said, would you prefer unemployed, illiterate people who cannot even look after themselves? Or do you think that um, it's the responsibility of the whole government, which was my argument, to create jobs, to create laws that were conducive to investment? And for me, looking back, Probably we should have done more practical subjects than we did. It's one of the, the things that I always think about. Yeah, and I took a group of my 15-year-olds to a machine tool factory in Harare. There were apprenticeships. That's what they wanted. But I had seven classes of 40 or 50 children. So if half of those are boys, you've got, you've got 175 or 200 boys, but maybe five apprenticeships. It's a challenge for development. You were right to emphasise good education and the values and the content and all the rest of it. But the, unless the economy develops as fast, you're generating challenges. Yes. It was a, a failure of all government, not a failure of education, because it was very important to recognise that there are all these young people coming to the job market. And if we had been very smart, even if we had built share factories and asked investors from Taiwan or from to come and, and invest in, 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 in fabrics, in textiles. In, we failed in terms of creating economic opportunities. And the failure was not only to education, it was the failure of the whole government. When you look back on that time, you must feel some pride in what you achieved, but also you must look back on what happened afterwards and wonder... I wonder about that. I feel very sad about what happened afterwards. I feel sad because I think Mugabe started as a very good leader who accepted the opinions of his uh, 
advisors or ministers. But progressively, I think as he became challenged, part of it, lack of jobs, part of it, lack of openness, lack of democracy. And a new party emerged, the Movement for Democratic Change, which unfortunately was uh, supported in mass by farmers. And so Mugabe sought to punish the farmers by really unleashing people on farms. Instead of creating jobs, we lost half a million jobs that were on the farms. And that really destroyed the economy. While those things unraveled, your education reform, amazingly, the schools kept doing well for right through that time, at least relatively. Okay, now there's something that happened, which I think uh, is not always written about. We have now a situation where you have a country in Zimbabwe, which are highly educated, very skilled people, and they are in demand because now we have globalization and the person with skills can move. So you start now seeing a movement first into SADC, then even into the UK, uh, into New Zealand. New Zealand even used to recruit carpenters from Zimbabwe. Then you have Australia. So you really now starting having the diaspora, which is a, a combination of very highly educated and very disciplined people who are in demand everywhere, and uh, you have an economy that is collapsing at home. It actually keeps Mugabe in power. Why? Because if you have all these people who would challenge Mugabe, because they would know that their children have no future, and they, they themselves had had good education, they themselves had good health care, they see these things collapsing, things that they take for granted, they would not have allowed Mugabe to survive. But the fact that they left was good vow for Mugabe because it meant that he could continue. I'd never thought about that, and it is an important point. Jingai, thank you very much for an excellent conversation. I really appreciate your time. I want to thank you for what you have done uh, as a teacher in Zimbabwe, what you have continued to do in education throughout the world. And in the UK, I consider you as a real good friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks again to Dr. Jingai Mutumbuka. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment. It's available at all good booksellers. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell. Thanks to her and the rest of the team. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss these great game changers telling their stories of how to get things done. Music